This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and thanks for being here on Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I cannot believe I'm doing my 85th episode of Self Work. That's amazing to me, and it's because of you. Your many comments, your ratings and reviews have given me the motivation to continue. So thank you so very much for being such a great audience. I started self-work last year because I wanted to reach people who were interested in psychological topics or perhaps even had been to therapy, but also to reach people who really didn't have much of an idea of what a mental health professional would sound like. So that's why self-work was created. Today, we're going to be talking about perfectionism. Obviously, when you're trying to confront your own perfectionistic bents, you're not going to do it perfectly. So this podcast isn't on how your perfectionism got started, but once you recognize it in yourself, what to do about it. It's one of the chief traits of what I call perfectly hidden depression. And by the way, I'm writing a book on perfectly hidden depression and actually celebrated getting half that book into my publisher this week. So I'll let you know more news about the book as I have it. Anyway, perfectionism is one of the chief traits. And there's recent research to show that perfectionism can be actually very dangerous. It's great if it's a striving for excellence, but when it morphs into something that's very frenetic and panicked, then it can be a true problem and can lead someone to depression. So we're going to be talking about how to confront perfectionism in yourself. The listener email today is from someone who had a question about being what she termed promiscuous in both her teenage years and as a married adult. I don't really think I had answers for her as much as I had some thoughts and theories for her to consider. So again, thanks for being here for the 85th edition of Self Work, and we're going to be talking about perfectionism. You may have read about perfectly hidden depression here on self-work. Many of you have written to me that you have. And if you haven't, episodes three and four is where to get started. But let's say you're a self-identified perfectionist. You've taken the questionnaire about perfectly hidden depression and you scored fairly high, or you've known you were a perfectionist for quite a while. Maybe you contacted a therapist or you've decided to take the bull by the horns and begin to risk some changes yourself. Maybe you're exhausted from the pressure of being so perfectionistic. So what could potentially get in your way of getting better? What are the stumbling blocks to commitment that you might encounter along the way? We're going to be talking about six situations that might make you quit and just go back to being perfectionistic. Most of them are unique to someone with perfectionism, but others are more about the challenge of change in and of itself. The first one, you can have too rigid a commitment, so if you should fail, shame is waiting for you. 
you know, you pride yourself on getting the work done that you're focusing on. If you've set something as a goal, and when that goal isn't easy to attain, you're uncomfortable with that feeling. You should be able to do it, right? It's no problem. What you may be forgetting is that your perfectionistic behaviors have kept your life very orderly, organized, and running smoothly, at least from your perspective. And let's say you decide you want to take more time for self-care, so you'll get a massage every month. Seems like a good idea. You book it and enjoy it the first month, but the second, well, that's the week your boss is going on vacation, or the kids are home from summer camp, or your best friend is having a mastectomy, so you don't get your massage. Then shame begins to creep in, and to avoid that shame, you begin rationalizing and justifying. The third month rolls around, and your perfectionistic voice says, well, you know, that just didn't work. It's simply not doable. The work stops because you didn't do it perfectly. Life gets in everybody's way of attaining goals. So having some compassion for yourself and understanding that there's no need to shame yourself. You just need to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, realize that patterns are very, very hard to change, and give it another try. The second thing that can get in your way if you're a perfectionist is that you begin with a goal that's too hard. Practice makes perfect. Yet you may choose a goal for yourself and then greatly discount how difficult it's going to be to alter your thinking or behavior. If, for example, the goal you've chosen first is to open up more to your friends or at least to one other person, but then you think and you think and you think, And you can't choose anyone that you might trust. Accepting that is a far better response than hating that fact or wasting energy trying for weeks to come up with someone. Then that shame factor from the first problem will seep in. So it's important to choose a goal that's truly doable, that won't challenge you too much initially. Then celebrate the heck out of achieving it. Things like not wearing makeup to the grocery store. Believe it or not, I have have given people that goal and they tell me, I can't do that. I I have to have makeup on when I walk out the door. But it's a far easier one to try. Or take a nap. Go to a movie instead of being productive. It doesn't really matter where you begin. It matters that you begin. You may think, oh, that's too small a thing. But no, it's actually not. As I said at the beginning, practice makes perfect. And sometimes if you change the small things, the bigger things become easier. A third thing that might get in your way is not asking for what you need along the way. Whether you're doing this work with the guidance of a counselor or a therapist or by yourself, asking for help is a challenge for a perfectionist. Let's say your therapist has asked you to begin journaling about your emotions trying to feel them as you go, and you're finding that to be very difficult. You can avoid the topic of journaling if she asks you how it's going, or you can say, it's fine, it's fine. Or instead, you can ask for help and bring the topic up yourself. You're revealing you're not perfect, of course, and that's hard for you, but you can choose to learn that it's okay to do that. So you risk talking to your therapist or talking to a friend. You say, 
I don't really know how to get in touch with my feelings. I can write about them, but I can't feel them. An experienced therapist can help you find strategies for that. Anything from mindfulness exercises to meditation to looking at how you're going about it to adding in other components that might help the feelings to service. For example, I often advise people instead of just free journaling to put their writing in the form of a letter. Either the letter could be to me or it could be to a family member, a friend. There's something about writing to someone that sometimes helps you get in touch with emotions. And I think that most of us, when we ask for help, we find that it's very, very freeing. Now, this next one is a biggie for anyone who's trying to change. Because you have to face your fear of giving up familiar coping strategies while your stress increases because you're trying to change. I'm going to stress again that your patterns of perfectionism, your behaviors and beliefs have served a purpose. They've kept you safe. They've given your life order. They've become how you know yourself and others know you. For example, people might say about you that you're a born leader or that they don't know how you get everything done that you get done. So it's the way people think about you and you think about yourself. So changing those patterns is hard. For example, if you begin to allow others to take the lead, if you don't get everything done on your list for that day or that week and take time for you, if you begin realizing that you've kept painful emotions at bay, but they're there waiting for you, and you begin trying to connect with them, then your stress level is going to increase. Positive change is stressful as well. It doesn't have to be negative stress for it to be stress. You're not going to know quite what to feel or how to feel it. It'll be awkward and may bring out sudden emotions like anger or fear. You're giving up what you know hasn't worked long term, but it's certainly been the short term answer. And it'll take time to let new habits become as familiar as the older ones were. So it's a kind of a sensitive balancing act. As you try to change one thing, then you have to handle the stress of the new and the ambiguity of not knowing what's going to happen next. And again, this isn't true for just a perfectionist. This is true for anyone who's trying to change their behavior, their beliefs, whatever. The fifth idea is that other issues that you may have, other even perhaps mental illnesses that you may have, may grow worse, again, due to the stress of change. If you have perfectly hidden depression, you may actually have some diagnosable mental illnesses along with your perfectionism. In fact, perfectionism is a trait that is tied and connected with several mental illnesses. It could be an eating disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorders, or anxiety. You could be trying to escape your depression and anxiety through the use of alcohol, sedatives, shopping too much, or other addictions. These problems can easily worsen as you begin to challenge the old system to get help and start to feel emotions that you've been suppressing, perhaps for a lifetime. The need to escape from them can feel paramount. So, once again, it's important to get the support and the help you need. Contacting a treating therapist or doctor to let them know what's going on. Making sure if you take medication that it's still effective. 
You may even need to pause your work on your perfectionism to deal with what can be serious consequences from some of these issues. For example, if you have anorexia and you're trying to deal with your perfectionism, you can stop eating. I had a patient just last year, she had anorexia. Every time she ate normally, she would cry and she had to work through those emotions. I remember the day she came into therapy and said, I ate without crying. It was incredible. So if your other illnesses or addictions are growing stronger and you don't understand it, again, it's due to that stress. That's not failure. You're having to learn along the way how to handle new stress. The last idea is, again, more about change in general than it is about perfectionism. It's pushback, or perhaps better stated, change back behavior from others. My mother once said to me, I'm going to start taking better care of myself and stop doing so much for other people. I was about 15 when she said that, and I said, well, good for you, Mom, but please stay the way you are with me. (laughs) So your family and friends may support you in your change. They may even have been concerned for you. But you making serious changes in your own choices will cause their lives to change as well. And sometimes that's not anticipated and isn't very welcome. In fact, if you listen to last week's post on bipolar illness, I actually talked about a husband and a wife that came in and the wife had serious bipolar illness and was often hypomanic or even manic. And he didn't want her to change because she got a lot done. It was kind of crazy, but... Sometimes your families are more invested in your perfectionism than they'd like to admit. So let's go over the six things again. Having too rigid a commitment, and then if you fail or you falter, you've got a lot of shame. You've got to begin with a goal that's not too hard. You need to ask for what you need along the way. You have to deal with your fear of giving up familiar coping strategies and your stress increasing at the same time. And this may lead to other mental illnesses or issues growing worse due to that stress. So you may have to stop and make sure those aren't getting out of hand before you continue, or at least pause. And then you may get pushback from others. You start not taking so much responsibility, taking a lot of the pressure off, talking more about yourself in relationships that perhaps have stayed mostly about the other person, All those are huge changes, but they're so worth it. I promise you, decreasing perfectionism, letting yourself breathe, as difficult as that may be for you, if that's been your habit, can be life-altering, and you can actually start enjoying your life. The listener email today is from someone who reveals that she was promiscuous in both her teenage years and her adult years. I always appreciate this kind of honesty because without being honest, there's no way that you can change destructive patterns. Says, hello, I've been listening for a few weeks now and have tried to figure out just how to phrase my question, but nothing sounds eloquent enough. So I'll just write it and see what you have to say. Please, those of you who are not writing me emails because they're not going to sound eloquent, go on and write them. (laughs) 
I'm child number three out of six children, and my youngest sibling is a boy. I was born in the late 70s, before sonograms, so my parents didn't know the sex of any of us girls until birth. All my life, I was told I should have been a boy, and if I'd been a boy, how great the world would be. In fact, all of us girls were told this. Those words made me a very bullheaded person, yet also full of doubt and with a tremendous lack of self-confidence. As a teen, I was promiscuous and still am as a married woman. My husband is a very kind, loving, and patient person, and he knows that I haven't always been faithful, but he loves me and doesn't want to lose what we have because of my poor choices. His own family history is a major drive for him not to leave. Now, as I look at my upcoming 43rd birthday, I'm asking myself, why do I seek the attention of other men? Why do I put myself in not-so-ideal situations for the sake of sex, knowing that I will eventually be heartbroken and upset when the high passes? Many therapists have told me they believe I was sexually abused as a child, and certainly that I don't love myself. If I was sexually abused by an adult, I don't remember. Inappropriate touching by a fellow classmate on the school bus, I do remember. Do you have any suggestions on what I can do to figure out why I am this way and how to stop seeking attention from others? I want to feel all the love my husband has for me and for that to keep me faithful. But for some reason, I'm blocked even after 23 years together. Thank you for sharing your precious gift of helping to those of us who need to hear your encouraging words and advice. Well, you're welcome, of course. So I write back to her, I appreciate your trust in me to share your story. Certainly as a therapist, it would have jumped in my head as well that you might have had sexual abuse in your history with what you're acting on now. However, if you don't, then that's not the answer. A few theories do come to mind immediately. First, you might want to read a Pat Carnes book on sexual addiction, specifically Out of the Shadows, and I'll have that link in the show notes. Women can certainly have sexual addictions as well, and it may be that an AA program or working with a therapist who is trained in sexual addiction would be helpful. Those therapists have a certification called a CSAT, a Certified Sexual Addiction Therapist, and they've gotten a lot of training about that because there can be a lot of reasons for sexual addictions. Another idea is that You certainly didn't get affirmation of who you were as a girl or as a growing woman, and you may be still looking for that. I tell dads all the time how important their support and love is for girls, especially when they begin to mature into women. It's vital that fathers give very safe reassurance about that journey. And if they do, adolescent girls are far less likely to seek the attention of other adolescent boys. Another idea is that it's self-damaging behavior, and it's habitual, it's chronic. And of course, it is damaging your relationship, no matter how much your husband is supportive of you and loves you. So you might want to read about borderline personality disorder. If that's what you're dealing with, then reading about it and seeing whether or not you have it could help you understand your own behavior. The classic book is, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, and again, I'll have that link. The last thought is if you're 41 and married 23 years, then you were still a child when you married. There may be something there as far as what's wrong with your relationship or whether you're playing out a missed childhood. I'm not sure. 
but I'd check out the above references. I hope this is helpful. Again, a great question and one that I know that probably many of you have about your feelings of sexuality and how you express them. I hope that's helpful to you. Again, thank you so much for listening to Self Work today. Please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. I have a new Facebook group, and I'll have the link of how to join that Facebook group. It's a closed group, but it's basically facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. But I'll have that link as well. Thank you for all the ratings and reviews. As I said at the beginning, that gives me great motivation to continue recording and producing self-work. Please subscribe wherever you are, or you can subscribe on my website. And that way you'll get my weekly blog post as well. Thanks again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.